Hello, welcome to this World Extreme Medicine podcast episode in which we're sifting through some key learning points from the Wilderness Medical Society Clinical Practice Guidelines on Anaphylaxis that's hot off the press. It was published two days ago in the Journal of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. My name's Dr. Will Duffin. I'm an expedition medic, family physician, former ED registrar and WEM medical director. And my name's Owen Walker. I am the pre-hospital lead for World Extreme Medicine, uh, former critical care paramedic, humanitarian paramedic and um, educationalist uh, working with WEM. We're really excited when this paper was published because it offers some fresh insights on the management of anaphylaxis in a wilderness environment. And Owen and I have been reading through it. And what we've done is sifted out our our kind of impressions, uh, these key take home messages, bits we liked, bits we liked a bit less. There's some of our own opinions in here. So you may not agree with all of it, but hopefully there's some useful takeaways from this. And we've combined it with uh, some of the latest UK guidelines of the Recess Council guidelines on anaphylaxis came out in may last year and then the nice guidelines in the uk came out august the year before so we're going to include some of the updates from those as well and to, to kick this off rather than just read through the paper we're going to start with a real case now owen you instruct on the jungle medicine course and back in 2011 there was a particularly challenging case of anaphylaxis can you tell us what happened Yes, indeed. Well, so uh, this was actually a year before I uh, attended and started to lead the course. It was, um, it was so it was in the Costa Rican jungle. It was in what we call Camp One in the remote um, primary rainforest, and um, it really does sort of really, uh, uh, really delineate and emphasize the difficult nature of critical care cases in the wilderness environment because this certain participant was stung uh, 26 times by uh, Costa Rican bees whilst going down for water um, at the at the water source um, coming back up to where the camp was um, she was already starting to show um, manifestations of, of clinical anaphylaxis so wheeze um, started to have uh, a rash started to have airway occlusion and swelling and angioedema and just really really tricky clinical case uh, which is told by the receiving doctor uh, Sean Hudson that was uh, that's one of my mentors so um true to true to life this case was um just as the um as they were losing the light um in 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 camp one which is a remote camp and it was a total of five hours just over five hours back to the base camp um and then from the base camp it was another a, a further three hours back to established uh, care and meeting the ambulance so it's a long long way uh, to travel in the dark in undulating territory so uh, primary rainforest there's a uh, triple canopy and what i mean by triple canopy is that there is um foliage and uh and 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 forest which is pretty much it down with with machetes to get through it it's steep increments of uh, of hills upwards and downwards will indeed you've been there with me you know how it um and if it rains it becomes extra tough and so the clinical pathology was that she was she was actually deteriorating really quickly 
um was actually tree anaphylaxis so a non-responder she she i think she had brief episodes of reaction to uh to im intramuscular adrenaline but then would deteriorate quite rapidly to the point where she lost consciousness and there was no recording of, of peripheral pulses really difficult case uh really difficult carry there's parts of uh, there's parts of that forest where you literally um cannot carry um with two to three people because it's the the tracks are so narrow and it's and it's so treacherous and so really difficult there's lots of human factors involved i think um they the retrospective learning was that bring more people than you need than you think you'll need because there's the, the exhaustion factor is definitely up there. Um, the uh, the bring plenty of, uh, of of adrenaline so you'll probably need more adrenaline than you think you will um in these types of cases intravascular access is probably key as well but certainly bring more adrenaline than you think you will brief the whole team as to where the adrenaline is make sure it doesn't leave your line of sight and just anticipate for some really difficult circumstances because i think at one point the receiving doctor uh sure and said you know this was he he wasn't sure what the outcome was going to be uh fortunately it was a, it was a, it was a great outcome and she made a full recovery the patient did but it was uh i think it was one of the sort of seminal cases of his wilderness career yeah we'll come on to the guidelines on refractory anaphylaxis in a moment but this poor casualty she absorbed a lot of adrenaline and she was still looking pretty crook wasn't she and uh, you just you know that's in a normal setting you this would be a, a patient who'd be in recess be in intensive care and instead she's stuck out in the jungle very all all uh sean had to manage her was just more adrenaline he really didn't have much kit did he and what an incredibly challenging case yeah, I think it was it was it was challenging from from a team perspective, just an exhaustion perspective, a a, a clinical manifestation perspective, and yeah, just the, the access to to medications. Okay, Evan. So let's dive into this paper. So let's start by uh, why don't you describe what is this paper all about? It's a fifteen-year uh, retrospective database review uh, looking at the u.s uh there is a um on that shows uh there was 39 cases of and 46 cases in 15 years so really not large numbers actually so with 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 these kind of numbers it's hard to extrapolate external validity from uh, from this study but uh, but yeah very much it's uh, the paper itself actually admits the fact there is no national database so it's hard to record uh, or difficult to record uh, cases which 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 aren't necessarily being tracked on a on a database so this is almost like a, a surrogate or, or indeed a, an analogue of, uh, of what might happen on expedition and a close analogue uh, to that. But yes, yeah, small numbers um, in the overall case uh, series. Yeah, it really exposes just what limited data there is pertaining to the wilderness with regards to anaphylaxis. Uh, and so this paper is really drawing from the best available evidence that there is, small observational studies, case series, um, and expert consensus. So in terms of actual 
data backing up you're right it, it is very very limited but that's just the nature of of data in this particular field isn't it and um they they quote some some epidemiology you've touched on that a moment uh, there owen what what did they what are their kind of key findings in terms of epidemiology around the rates of anaphylaxis in wilderness environments yeah so interestingly uh, there was a prevailing in in one database there was a prevailing um case uh, series within food-based allergies uh, over sort of stings or insect bites um, and that was more um, to do with indeed uh, yeah food-based allergies amongst a, a young homogeneous population um, and then the other one actually showed something different so the other database showed actually there was a, a prevailing uh, uh, prevailing Sorry, there was a prevailing pathology in uh, insect stings and uh, and bites. So, it, interestingly, quite counter to the first one, but um, but it's true to say that these are young, fit, healthy uh, teenagers, adolescents, and or adults. And so, it's it's really prudent to to look at the not only the sample size, but the but the but the almost the homogeneous uh, case mix for the. Um, for the study itself but yeah, yeah small numbers and indeed um both reflecting quite different results but those two main domains one stings and bites and the other one was food-based allergies but i think for me the the reassuring thing was that fortunately the rates of anaphylaxis in both those cohorts so the um the knolls cohort and the outward bound which, as you said both groups of young outdoor uh people uh, rates of three in a thousand and one in a thousand students of anaphylaxis, which is far below the quoted general population rate in the US of 1.6 to 2%. So it appears that anaphylaxis, at least in those cohorts, is uncommon, but it's not rare. So it does still happen. And interestingly, they found that in those both those case series, 20% of those anaphylaxis cases were in fir were first time reactions in individuals with no prior history of allergy so wouldn't have their own EpiPens, wouldn't necessarily know what, what to expect with that. So that that's a real learning point for me that it's really important to not rely on and people bringing their own EpiPens. You've got to have your own kit to be able to handle this and it can arise completely de novo. Absolutely, well, absolutely. Um, just looking at the uh, the paper itself, it does mention that the World Allergy Organization, so they, they're, they're working diagnosis to which they benchmark uh, anaphylaxis is from a world allergy organization perspective um so uh, just just what what are the what does the paper say about uh, a working diagnosis of anaphylaxis yeah it's good yeah the, the who criteria i think are really sensible and i think the american guidelines are anaphylaxis they try to be very prescriptive which i think is is hard because it's it requires a high level of clinical acumen there aren't any fixed criteria that you can apply to anaphylaxis because it's it's very broad in its in its manifestation the who criteria quoted in this paper i think are very sensible so they define anaphylaxis as two criteria so sudden onset of cutaneous or mucosal signs so that's new new rash or tucaria or tongue or lip swelling for example that progress within minutes to hours accompanied by some compromise in airway breathing circulation so respiratory comp compromise hypotension or indeed gi symptoms so gi upset is in there and i think um you know, there's an emphasis there on uh, it being multi-system it being acute in onset those are really key criteria uh, and the other thing that's mentioned is 
that supporting uh, features are respiratory compromise, bronchospasm, etc. Uh, and also skin involvement, so rash, but th that's not necessarily a key diagnostic criteria. In fact, 10 to 20 percent of anaphylaxis cases happen w where there's completely absent skin or mucosal findings. And it's really just going on the abrupt onset and those other features. So I think there, it, it's certainly not a kind of an algorithm that you can flow down. But I think anyone with some kind of clinical acumen is, should be able to follow that and, and have a reasonable stab at the diagnosis. Do you, What do you think about those criteria and do they work for you? Yeah, indeed they do. Um, there's, there's these two main domains, they say in the paper, isn't there? The, the exercise-induced anaphylaxis and the food-dependent um, exercise-induced anaphylaxis. So there's, there's, there's kind of these two subdomains. But absolutely, Will, because actually what I've learned sort of from 20 years in clinical practice is actually no two anaphylactic reactions look the same because some some... Um, some do have respiratory pathology, some might not have respiratory pathology, others might purely be respiratory pathology, um, but obviously all time critical or um, quite acute cases. But actually, uh, yeah, th there might be an absence of urticarial rash, there might be an absence of... Um, of swelling, but with a prevailing uh, bronchospasm or difficulty in breathing from an allergic uh, source. So I think you have to keep your mind open to lots of different presentations, case presentations, and also lots of different um, sources of, 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 of anaphylaxis as well, because they can present quite differently. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's a wide clinical spectrum. So some patients may just have a bit of angioedema, a bit of urticaria. And, and, and some cases I've seen, it's quite hard to really call it when that is evolving into full-blown anaphylaxis. And I think this is a real di diagnostic dilemma, particularly for the, the wilderness clinician, is at what point do you make that call? Do you say, hang on, this is this is getting serious? And certainly the, the Recess Council guidelines that I've been reading uh, place a heavy emphasis on if there's, if in doubt, just give adrenaline, you know, don't, don't mess around because it's unlikely to cause harm, but it's potentially very life-saving. Um, so, so I think so we'll, that's very sage advice. Absolutely. So, so well, let's just, let's cut to the chase in the, in the paper, because there is some interesting points to speak about actually with the results. So it is an extensive paper. It's actually uh, a large paper. Um, but um, what are some of the prevailing results that sort of jump out at you, Will? Yeah, so I think uh, the, the, the main recommend for me that one pitfall of the paper is the, the, the recommendations are buried within the text. So you have to kind of sift through it to, to get the, the kind of the key take homes. And that's what we're hoping to, to draw out today. Uh, but I, I'd like to really focus on the, 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 the treatment here uh, and the kind of what the paper adds in terms of um uh, 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 what, how we modify that for a wilderness scenario and, and they do mention first principles which i think is good so they talk about standing back assessing the scene uh one thing we teach in our courses is drsc abc so danger response call for help circulation airway breathing circulation you know, that's a really good pre-hospital framework uh just you know you don't just dive in you you kind of stand back and assess the scene um uh, but there, to me there's there's no other mention of other practical steps that we, you might do and this is stuff that i'm sure you do as bread and butter as a paramedic i mean stuff like if if they've got hypertension giving them a f simple fluid bolus by lifting their legs up that gives you 500 mils 
for free or if they're sat up just uh, so if they've got respiratory compromise just sitting them up to help them breathe yeah, so there's a couple of practical measures which i might like to have seen in in that guideline that, that don't quite feature uh, i'm talking about simple non-drug uh, measures now were there, were there any other things that that you picked out from that owen or would would like to see in there I, I think you've mentioned the crux of it there really well, which is access to information. So the information isn't necessarily laid out in an easily accessible manner. So there's there's, there's no infographics, there's no algorithms, um, there's there's really no hierarchy of treatment pathway, which actually you really need. So for information retention in in the moment, you need something easily assimilated, easily recalled and remembered, and and that really isn't. For featured in this paper because you're right you really have to be a detective to dig it out from from this extensive paper which is 15 pages long um so absolutely to to your point well just practical steps actually uh, provide mileage when when uh, when looking at the, the overall picture they do recommend uh, epinephrine so adrenaline as the an essential component and that's congruent with as we know resource uh, council guidelines and nice guidelines and it, it does it features throughout the paper um but they it does get lost within with within the, the the greater paper they also look at needle length which again uh, the, with it for obese patients and 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 whether it actually gets to the intramuscular space again i'm not too sure that's entirely necessary i'd rather see the paper laboring other practical pointers such as access to skin such as simple measures like say sitting yeah. the patient up or elevating legs um and then uh, we'll talk about this and then maybe i'll throw this out to you actually will around uh, the use of uh, antihistamines and steroids uh, because actually they're de-emphasized yeah. in the rhesus council guidelines what's your thoughts on that Yes, it's interesting. Just to come back to your point there on the the focus on the paper, it's very much on the kind of the drugs, the adrenaline, antihistamines and steroids debate. And you're right, there's just not enough there for the wilderness practitioner on simple, basic non-drug steps that will really help you manage that patient in the field. So I feel like that is lacking. I completely agree. Um, needle length, I just want to come on back on that. So that for me actually was a useful insight. EpiPens have short needles, 13 millimetres compare, compare with um emeraid which has a, a 23 millimeter uh, uh needle on it so in with the increasingly obese population that might be the go-to uh option um with regards to adrenaline the research council the, the latest bmj article a nice guidelines have like you say massively de-emphasized the role of of uh steroids and antihistamines there's no evidence to show they reduce no compelling evidence to show they reduce the risk of biphasic reaction or have any meaningful impact on the kind of uh the natural history of anaphylaxis and that adrenaline is really the single intervention that's going to make the difference and particularly from a wilderness environment where there's lots of other steps that need to be done in terms of managing that casualty in their environment coordinating medevac etc i think it's about the 80 20 rule you know what is the 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 20 percent that's going to make the 80 percent of the difference and in this case that's adrenaline they i think the paper does go on to look at some of the conflicting and i would say not very convincing evidence to support the use of steroids and, and antihistamines 
Uh, but uh, for me, it still doesn't place enough emphasis on adrenaline as being the single thing that makes the difference. And I just, the, the w- concern for me is in a wilderness environment that those other treatments, drug treatments, are just going to become a distraction um, to other more meaningful activity, uh, you know, monitoring, evacuation, etc. You know, you're going to be faffing around with all these different drug doses and actually the, you know, the, the, it's not serving the patient. Yeah, I, listen, I agree. And uh, one of the useful things they do mention is, you know, that out-of-date adrenaline can be used up to nine months past expiration, expiration date. And that's also quite useful in a wilderness environment where they actually do say there's to be evidence that either high or low temperature doesn't uh, doesn't actually uh, change the potency or indeed the effect- effectiveness of, of uh, intramuscular adrenaline. So that, that is useful. But like you said actually um what what we need to do is have clear sequential steps and non-pharmacological steps in this that are retained by the practitioner because when you come to me at 10 p.m in the dark in the jungle and it's raining um i'm not gonna be able to recall 15 pages of uh of of (laughs) narrative yeah quite it needs quite to be simple it needs to be assimilated yeah I d- definitely would love to have seen more infographics more of a uh um uh condensing some of that dialogue into much clearer uh, messaging um and, and algorithms etc we we love all that kind of stuff going back to your point there about expiration dates i think that's a really important point because when you're restocking med kits adrenaline's a pain in the ass because it's expensive and it goes out of date before you use most of it so it's nice refreshing to have some kind of um support for uh, or justification for using expired adrenaline what's not clear from the paper is I think they're saying it's the evidence is there to, to to use it if it's expired, say, within 24 months of the expiration date. And that's all you've got. But I'm not sure if what they're saying is it's OK to just have expired meds just hanging around in your med kit. Um, I, 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 there is the data there on effectiveness of adrenaline beyond expiry date is I wouldn't say it's that that robust. Uh, and I, you know, it, it, it really is a uh, quite a, a, a time critical, uh, you know, life saving intervention that you you don't want to be taking chances with. So I'm not sure how comfortable I'd feel just letting the adrenaline stock go out of date and 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 assuming that would be effective still if if I was to need it. What are your thoughts on that, Owen? I completely agree, Will. And you know, our, our approach to the jungle medicine um course and indeed being in primary rainforest is that you want in-date meds you want to be as transparent as possible with the whole group um everyone needs to know where the medication is it's it is checked for expiry dates um you need to share the mental model and actually everything needs to be up to date and in date because like you said if you need it and it's an emergency you you you'll need it now so it's it's a case of um you don't want to roll the dice with uh with medication uh for for effectiveness and sort of play with out-of-date drugs i i know what this paper is sort of notioning towards which is maybe in the austere humanitarian environment where there's no other options but uh, which is which may be a different you know a different kind of case but um but absolutely when you're on on expedition and you have chance to renew the uh the expiratory date then that's certainly something i would advocate as well there's an interesting discussion as well on the pros and cons of having auto injectors in your med kit or 
vials or ampules and syringes so do you have the pre-filled option which is you know easy to carry it's just ready to go in an emergency or do you have um something which is a little bit cheaper but is a little bit more of a faff to 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 get um ready to use what are your thoughts on that owen on that on that discussion and has that has that added much for you what what, what would you go for in your wilderness med kit epipen adrenaline auto injectors or vials or ampules what's your preference yeah so a bit of both actually so we we carry both we carry ampules and uh, three auto injectors uh, and uh, four vials uh, containing uh, one mil of uh, one in one thousand adrenaline so we 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 overly cater really and then we we, we let everyone know where the uh where the auto injectors and where the vials are together with im needles so i i would advocate both um but if I had to choose, I would I would say that the auto injectors are a lot more robust. Although you know the people have been known to activate the the the, the trigger or indeed the the spring, just showing other people how to use them. There's been plenty of accounts that they've they've fired off. And the problem is, if they fire off, you you only get one shot at using the auto injectors. Yeah. They are more robust. There is plenty of adrenaline in the vial. So one of the learning points is that you can actually cut the auto injector open, and you've got three probably about three to four more doses within the within the auto injector itself so you have got access to more yeah. adrenaline there it's interesting well. that's mentioned in the paper as a useful hack if that's all you've got and you need more doses but it doesn't actually tell you how there's no links to any instruction on on how you might do that uh, but it's good mm-hmm. to know that's there isn't it so, Will, what's your yeah. thoughts on the... So, something else about treatment within the paper. It, it says about inhaled beta agonists, such as salbutamol, as an adjunctive treatment for wheezing. What's your thoughts on that? Because, you know, when you are out in the wilderness environment, you don't necessarily have access to oxygen uh, or to nebulized, uh, nebulized uh, salbutamol. I know we advocate squirting salbutamol into the bottle maybe and 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 putting it into the spacer what's your thoughts from a practicality perspective on that i hey in a wilderness setting you've got to do the best you can with what you have haven't you and i think if someone's wheezy you've got a salbutamol inhaler i I would almost certainly give it to them particularly if they had a a known history of asthma um or atp i I think you know that's a simple thing you can do that may have an impact and it's unlikely to cause harm it might make them a little bit tachycardic uh, so you might get a bit more anxious as the heart rate increases but uh, i i i would give it what about you yeah i would absolutely i think i definitely do the spacer uh concept so uh 10 squirts into 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 a bottle uh and get them to breathe into the bottle just so that so that there is a real pervasion a real sort of integration of the of the medication into the into the respiratory system but absolutely and i think what what i've learned from practice as well is that you want to probably if there is any asthmatics or indeed people with anaphylaxis you probably want to bring a spare inhaler as well just oh, in case they forget theirs or theirs doesn't work or they run yeah. out of uh, of salbutamol so always having two. a spare one is two is one and one is none you taught me that owen exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> in talking about in, in, inhaled um treatments it, it the paper does mention uh in an inhaled metered dose epinephrine or adrenaline which i think is quite interesting uh, and the, the, there is some evidence for that but it's not thought to be practical or particularly effective um, and there's also uh, intranasal 
and sublingual formulations of adrenaline, which is interesting. Again, largely experimental under development, not something we're going to be using. But, you know, just a nod to future of medicine, whether there'll be perhaps more easier methods of administering adrenaline than, than an IM injection that, that might come into play. So I, I thought that was quite interesting, little aside. Yeah, very much, Will, very much. I mean, me and you are, have, have, have very much been in the wilderness environment uh, over time, as I'm sure many others have. And this paper mentions IV epinephrine uh, or alternate, uh, alternative vasopressors. Now, I think having been in in the wilderness environment having lived there for long periods of time having knowing that the lack of access to monitoring and the lack of access to ecgs or, or indeed to uh, to blood pressure monitoring i would be very reluctant and nervous to give venous um epinephrine um in in the wilderness environments you know you haven't got um you haven't got access to the the monitoring equipment the resuscitation equipment that you might have in a resuscitation room or indeed a well-established um uh, pre-hospital care system so actually yeah some some of these recommendations i think actually could do with caveats because uh, iv adrenaline is really for a well-monitored well-lit uh, well-resourced um ed or indeed pre-hospital care system yeah i completely agree owen and they recommend this is we're talking about refractory anaphylaxis now and this is patients who've who've absorbed more than two doses of adrenaline and are still sick um their recommendations are very much in line with the recess council uh, nice recommendations that they essentially just um a carbon copy of what you might uh, aspire to do if you had all the resources around you if you had proper monitoring um uh, and you know you're surrounded by an intensive care unit uh but like you say particularly i mean maybe crystalloid infusion that's fine you you, you can get that running but when he talk, started talking about adrenaline infusions I, i'm sure that would be a nice to have but i don't know how practical or safe that is in in those kind of particularly in the jungle environment that, that you had there whether that's really feasible at all yeah absolutely absolutely well so for me the paper just doesn't necessarily take into the context the wilderness environment when it does mention around IV infusions um, but the the commonality of giving IM adrenaline is absolutely key and does feature within within the paper um, and there's there is a a uh, prevailing sense around refractory anaphylaxis from the uh, Resource Council, and indeed it does feature in this paper that you there is no limit to the amount of adrenaline you can give in anaphylaxis. So it really is to offset clinical manifestation or clinical symptomatology. It there is no limit. You can keep giving every five minutes, every five minutes to offset what might be a very sick patient in front of you. So this 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 paper does mention it. It's a common theme throughout the different protocols nice guidelines the resuscitation council guidelines and it really just is important to note that there is no upper limit to the amount of adrenaline that you can that you can give so will as the paper sort of comes into land we it, it mentions around field protocols what's your perspective on the field protocols yeah i think this is a great section um for me it's a bit of an afterthought in the paper uh, it, 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 it's a shame because it talks about the, the decision to evacuate and the modality of evacuation in a wilderness environment. And this is really just a tiny section in that 
15 page behemoth of a paper when actually for me this is the nub of wilderness medicine this is the this is the, the question that we're all asking and it's nice that they discuss some of the issues that arise so the decision to evacuate they acknowledge depends on multiple factors including environmental and safety considerations terrain weather visibility distance of definitive care uh, medical comorbidities, risk factors for biphasic reaction, training of field providers, etc., medical kits. So, you know, they, they list all of the factors. But for me, there's not much value added because it doesn't actually distill any of that into a kind of usable recommendation or advice. It's really just saying these issues are there. I, I think they're self-evident in a a wilderness environment i'd like to have seen and perhaps if there's a an, a, a follow-on from this paper is perhaps more of a detailed discussion on what are the priorities and what what would best practice look like when we are making evacuation decisions in a wilderness environment and i, I appreciate that's not easy to do because there are so many variables but i'd like someone to attempt to add something some clarity and some structure to that decision making what were your your thoughts on that owen yeah absolutely well you know they they mentioned factors such as geography weather field capabilities and patient characteristics and response to treatment being factors within within field protocols but absolutely you could really that's that is the crux of wilderness medicine and that really needs to be highlighted far more and just looking at yeah how we mitigate some of these factors and indeed it says here you know how it's generally recommended that the, there is medical evacuation after treatment of anaphylaxis i would say it's not necessarily just a general recommendation it's an absolute recommendation uh for 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 field evacuation because you know you cannot with biphasic responses with the potential for refractory anaphylaxis for um for the different types of pathology you see with anaphylaxis the, the, there is no way these patients are staying within the field but to your point will and i think it's a great point you make this is the crux of wilderness medicine and actually breaking down the practical decision making tools you know and all links to other information on temporary stretches on mitigation of environment where possible on on protocols for uh, extraction and or casivac planning um to to mitigate this because this is an absolute these patients are coming out and so actually it would be it would have been nice to emphasize this within the paper and, and get some real standout information Absolutely, mate. And, and all the received wisdom anaphylaxis is as soon as you've given the adrenaline, really, they need definitive care because of that risk of, of, of uh, rebound. Um, and yeah, uh, it, it's uh, how you do that in a wilderness setting for me it still remains a bit of a mystery and, and a, 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 a dilemma that, that we'll continue to face. So uh, there it is. Well, we've had a, uh, Owen and I have gone through that paper. We've sifted out what our key home take home messages are and we've espoused our own opinions on that paper if you agree with them great if not we'd love to hear from you please keep the conversation going on social media let us know what your perspectives on this paper are and if you want to learn about more podcast episodes like this and more content from world extreme medicine please sign up for our newsletter and you can do that by going to uh, worldextrememedicine.com so uh owen um i think it's time for us to to say goodbye absolutely mate so just to say uh, in the show notes we'll put links to this paper we'll put links to the uh, to the uh, resuscitation council paper we'll put links to the nice guidelines just so that people can both track the paper um, and track the 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 european and indeed international guidelines for their information but will as ever mate it's been a pleasure speaking to you 
Likewise.